Welcome, everyone. Welcome, welcome to the Max Schmarzo podcast. Thank you for joining. Thank you for being a friend of the show. Thanks for tuning in. We have a great episode today. We're talking about a couple of things. Um, I have two primary topics I want to talk about. Number one, what makes a great hamburger? This is a very important discussion. It's relative to what's happening in my life today. And I think you, you might, we'll like talk, we'll talk about this. We'll get there. And number two, I don't want to spoil anything. It's a fun one. And number two is training related. We're going to talk a little bit about making training competitive. And if we have time, I'm going to talk a little bit about my experience of trying to get really lean and how that makes me feel in terms of uh, performance. I kind of mentioned some stuff about this in the past, but um, this is more of not necessarily performance, I should say, but kind of some of the mental tricks it plays on you. I felt like I didn't give a complete discussion regarding that topic because there is some stuff that comes up. If we have time, we'll get to it. So let's just, let's just get right into the hot topic we all care about. What makes a great hamburger? So my lovely wife and I, we're going to get some hamburgers tonight from a food truck, which we really enjoy. It's called Floyd's, I believe. Um, they're over at, um, my goodness, some brewery they go to. It's a food truck, so they go to breweries and they deal out, they, they deal out, they dish out hamburgers, all other good sorts of food. Um, at these breweries. I'm not there for the beer, not a big beer guy, um, big burger guy instead. I'm, I'm a uh, very bullish on hamburgers, right? So, um, they make a very specific type of hamburger and, and I've been, maybe my memory is a little fonder than what exists, what it actually is. And again, I'll go eat it tonight and figure it out, but there's a lot of dis differences in burgers you can make. And there are lots of different kinds of great burgers you can have. And I want to talk about some of those burgers here today. So first off, the Floyd burger, I'll start with, and we'll go from there and why I like it. And then some other hamburgers I really enjoy, some facts about them, what makes them really good. So the Floyd hamburger, first off, we start with the patty because the patty is going to dictate how the rest of the burger is formed around it. The Floyd patty is a thin very, very aggressively cooked patty, not necessarily charred, but heavily cooked, very thin. So it yields itself to be maybe a little bit greasier, um, not as full bodied as some of those thicker, you know, inch and a half inch hamburgers with the traditional maybe pink in the middle, like a steak burger or a steakhouse burger you might get. It's a thin, very, maybe it's fried, I believe would be the proper way to call it fried burger, very crabby patty kind of style. If you're a SpongeBob fan, hamburger, thin, thin burger. So with that thin burger, you're going to have the half, you have to have the right things to go along with it. You cannot put a thin burger and then mix it together with this over the top gourmet dressing. I'm literally talking about the dressing itself or whether it's the ketchup and, you know, mustard, by the way, mustard, not often on hamburgers, but I low-key think is kind of underrated on hamburgers. I'm a weirdo like that. Um, so thin, very crisp fried burger, a big hunk of onion on there, the lettuce. You need to have sharpness with that very thin, crisp hamburger. So that thin, crisp hamburger, that sets the tone. If it's a big, heavy patty, you can do this big, heavy dance with it. You can have the fancy bun you can have the um the fancy dressing on it the weird cheeses it can 
uh, go many different routes. It can kind of taste not like a burger. Um, you can get eat halfway through it and you have that fancy homemade ketchup that you're dan- you're dipping your fancy fries into. And that whole song and dance is very opulent. It's grandiose. It is a burger in of itself because it's set by that heavy patty. But a thin fried burger, streamlined, that's like a race car. You're going fast and you're not going to be last. Pedal to the metal, baby. Sharp flavors. Um, things that punch through a nice crisp, fresh cut onion. Lettuce is fresh. The tomato is fresh. The cheese is not overly melted. Those steakhouse burgers have those big melty cheese patties, those heavy buns. They weigh you down. It's like an anchor on a ship. You eat that thing. You are anchored to the couch for the next two hours. This burger from Floyd is one you eat and you say, may I have another? It's not that's it. Those big steakhouse burgers, that's the end-all, be-all. It is the crescendo of the evening. It is the totality of the night. This Floyd burger, you eat it. Something else might happen tonight. Things are about to get exciting. Maybe I'm going to have another burger. Maybe another four. There is no limit. Yeah, there might be two patties on it. Doesn't matter. You could put... Two patties on two patties on two patties. These things are thin. They're crisp. They're built to go fast. Those are the kind of burgers I like. Now, I'm not against the steakhouse burgers. The steakhouse burgers, you pay for that. You pay for the grandioseness. But in the day, you're paying for the pomp and circumstance. You're paying for the big parade, the dance, the, the big show. You're paying for the bloat, the bellyache sitting on the couch, not moving, incapacitated. That is, it's a mood, but it is the mood. That is the event. The burger is the event. Those thin, crisp burgers, that's the, that's the kindle to a fire of a good evening. That is the starter. It's the initial thrust of a rocket going into space. It's not the kerplunk of a rock in the water like a big steakhouse burger? No. Uh Uh-uh. It sets the table. It is not the table. The table that you crash into because you're so bloated from this massive steakhouse burger. You're trying to make your way to the kitchen to get some water because all you can think about is all the salt you just had. No. This is the type of burger you eat. You might race someone down the street after in a car that goes fast. It's cool. You might wear a leather jacket and eat this hamburger. You might go buy a pair of sunglasses. Some aviators. You might eat this hamburger and go watch Top Gun 2. Pete Mitchell would eat this hamburger. Pete Mitchell and Arnold hanging out, eating hamburgers together. You know what they're eating? They're not eating steakhouse burgers. No, sir. Mm-mm. Can't be weighed down while you're lifting weights and flying planes. Nope. They're eating the crispy thin burger. Because they got fighters they got to fight and planes they got to fly and shows they got to pose muscular at. That's why. I like those burgers. Now, nothing against the steakhouse burger. Nothing at all. There's nothing wrong with doing things that are grand over bombastic, over the top, opulent. 
it's totally fine. Can't do it day in and day out. This thin burger, crisp, streamlined burger, I could eat every day. Feel great. Fabulous. Steakhouse burger, kind of that, you know, I did it. Now what? I have to recover. The streamlined burger, you eat that? That is recovery. You're ready to go right after. Man, I'm hungry thinking about it. I'm excited to go get this Floyd's burger. Thin, crisp, live lettuce, live onions. Not overly flavored with that weird green looking mustard and that funny tiny pickle next to it that's really small. You know, those steakhouse burgers, they have that weird small pickle. If you eat it, you go, what the heck was that? And they got some like olives, Ugh. not on it, but on the side of it. You know what I'm talking about. Yeesh, that weird little pickle. What is that thing? I don't want that. I want a pickle. Sometimes thinly sliced. Lots of salt on my streamlined hamburger. <sighs> Not that. Do you know what I'm talking about? That weird yellow mustard thing, pickle, a big heavy hamburger, weighs 45 pounds. One of the most, that and a black hole are the two densest objects in the universe. Nope. Streamline burger. Built to fly. It's the F-15 of hamburgers. <laughs> Top Gun burger. That's my take on hamburgers. We'll leave it there for now. Steakhouse burger versus the streamline crispy thin burger. The everyman's burger. All right. Well, that's that topic. Topic number two, what you might have actually came here for is the training stuff. So recently I was on the field with uh, Chasen and we're doing a field workout. By the way, these trans transitions between topics are just effortless, smooth, seconds between the discussion of a hamburger and now how to make things more competitive. Not going to find that anywhere else. Let's continue. So I was on the field with Chasen, and uh, we were going through some pogo work. Pogo hops are these jumps you do, light, elastic, quick off the ground. You've probably seen them. You're kind of hopping, very, um, you know, classic plow metrics. We used a light bar in this one, a 15-pound baby bar. I love that baby bar. It's easy to take from the back of the truck, fits in the back of the truck, stays in the back of the truck, rattles around in my back of my truck because I forget I leave it in the back of the truck. When I turn my truck, I hear something in the back of my truck and it's the baby bar smashing in the side. I go, oh, I should move that thing out. And I always forget. But beside that, it's in the back of the truck and we use it for the pogos. Hop, 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 eight reps. But then I was like, man, I want to pair this with something because I like pairing things. It's fun to pair things. It's cool to pair things. It looks good on Instagram, but also it's actually pretty useful because why you have the isolated exercise where you're trying to isolate a specific quality, that is the movement, quick elastic movement. And then I want to pair that movement into something more competitive using that same movement I just did. So in this case, we then went into a, we toss a ball up in the air and you got to try and tap it. And the rule of this game was I was going to throw the basketball at different heights. So Chasen was next to me or just in front of me, to my side actually. And I would throw the basketball in the air. And before Chasen had to jump and touch the basketball, he had to jump and touch it. But as he jumped, he had to do what is a pogo jump. So a quick, light, rhythmic jump. Try and touch it before it hits the ground. And the key thing is before it hits the ground. Because when I did this, 
I could throw it really high in the air or not as high in the air. And the point of doing that is so that he's not trying to time it up. He's not sitting there going to be like, oh, I'm going to jump now. No, we want to be reactive. And so by adding the variable heights, we had made it reactive. And what was really cool about this is you made training fun. You made it competitive. You made it a game. And when you make it like that and you're outside and the birds are chirping and the sun is out, you get lots of really high quality reps. High quality reps are a good thing. High quality reps are where performance gains take place. And so it got me thinking about how we can continue to make things competitive. How can we make training fun? Fun and competition sometimes go hand in hand. In this case, it seems like it did. So in our training, we were looking for ways to make it fun, competitive, but also integrated with what we're trying to accomplish. So that's where these fun competitive pairings kind of came out of was the idea of like, look, I want to isolate this specific quality of jumping. And then I want to put that same movement pattern under some sort of pressure to perform, but in a competitive setting. So we added points to it. You lost if you didn't touch it, but by the time you hit the ground, so on and so forth. So you toss the ball up in the air. Let me explain it really quick because I might have done a poor job the first time. You hop, you jump and try and touch the ball in the air. But if you hit the ground, not the ball, you hit the ground before you've touched the ball because they threw it really high and you mistimed it and you got to do a double jump, you lost. So it takes away the cheat factor. Um, this is where things like keeping track of your velocity scores, keeping track of your jump heights. You guys have seen me use that machine thing where I hold it up in the air. The, the jump-a-thon machine, we got Ryan jump and touch it, makes it competitive and fun. You can go, the athlete can go, you can challenge each other by doing it. All those things are wonderful options, right? Now you can use velocity devices too. You can measure just your output, how fast someone moves something. A velocity device for those listening who aren't aware, it just measures how fast the bar is moving. And in doing such, you have feedback. I know I moved the bar one meter a second because it told me so. Now I want to beat the speed of that. And what's really cool about that is innately, it changes the perspective of the movement. So when I get feedback on the bar, I know it's one meter a second. Cool. Wonderful. But in a traditional lift, let's just take a step back and we'll look at it like this. I'm traditionally just lifting. The goal and objective is to complete the lift, lift the bar from point A to point B. It's not about lifting the bar from point A to point B as fast as you can. That's not typically the goal of lifting unless you make it the goal. And that's where adding velocity measured outputs is really useful because now you change the objective from lifting it from point A to point B as success. Now the objective changes from point A to point B as fast as I can. And now I can measure that output. I can see if I'm actually getting faster. And now I've induced a competitive environment from which I'm trying to have competition against either my previous best all-time record, my previous best rep of the day, or even another athlete that you are competing against. So it changes the mental framework from which we're doing the exercise. No longer is success determined by lifting from A to B, but now it's lifting as fast as possible. And those are the same neural outputs you get when you compete in a sport. You don't just try and jump and touch the backboard, or I'm not sure what sport you're just jumping and touching the backboard. You're not trying to jump high enough to finish a layup. You're trying to jump as high as possible, dunk on somebody. You're being competitive. You're competing. You're not just trying to run fast. You're trying to be the fastest runner out there. All those things change the framework and how we are competing and playing. And if we can mimic that in training, we now have a wonderful means to provide a unique stimulus in which the athlete can compete. So it's not just about being fun. It's easy to make training fun. It's easy to make competitive. It's about making it fun and competitive directed or centered around a specific stimulus. 
So as I go back to the pogo hop example, it's not arbitrarily jump and touch a ball. Ooh, wow, neat, fun. We did a specific movement that added an external load to an exercise or a movement pattern in which the pogo hop was the emphasis. Then I said, wonderful. Keeping that movement pattern as what we'd like to train it as, the pogo hop, we're going to play a game where it is constrained by you having to do a pogo hop and competing while doing a pogo hop. So it's not like, hey, let's just do the pogo hops and now arbitrarily do a fun game because fun is fun. No, let's do a pogo hop. Let's do a game centered around the idea of the pogo hop itself. Now we are competing and having to use that pogo hop in a competitive environment. This is a nice way to almost test the robustness and the resiliency of a specific type of motor pattern. Now, is that motor pattern always going to be used in a game? Absolutely not. Sometimes you will have a short contact, a long contact, different types of approach and jumps. So I'm simply using the game and the constraints of the rules to emphasize a specific aspect of the motor pattern that we want to overload. That is pogo hops. Now, maybe I would include a couple other different types of jumps. Maybe I can include a deep knee bend jump, a one-two jump, and a pogo hop. And when I go and play my game, I can allow the athlete to have access to all three of those. That's an option. You, they can pick and choose. Or maybe I can make it kind of fun and I can call it out. Or I can add environmental obstacles that would force them to do that. For example, a big hurdle they have to jump over versus a small hurdle. Okay, in a small hurdle, they might be more inclined to do a pogo hop because it gets it over quicker, the hurdle, versus a bigger hurdle they might have to step and actually jump over as high as they can. So just some ideas to think about, some things to chew on. Not just about fun, but directed fun and competition. The same thing goes for the velocity feedback. It's not just arbitrary velocity feedback. It's velocity feedback on a specific movement pattern in which high exercise outputs are the emphasis. And we're using velocity feedback not as a random tool, but as a tool to augment high intent efforts, high explosive efforts. We're using that tool to augment the training stimulus, but the stimulus exists whether or not we have the tool in front of us. So that's my take on that. And I hope that makes sense. Um, those are the two topics I really wanted to cover today. The last one is, by the way, about getting lean. And my quick take on that is a common mistake I make is when I get leaner and I'm dieting and I want to lose some body fat, I start to lose body fat and I start to see more muscle in the mirror. That's really cool. But one of the big mistakes I make is I start to see muscle and I start to equate to seeing more muscle as this diet is helping me build more muscle. That's not the case. The muscle was already built. It's just being revealed. And in doing such, because I can see more muscle and I can see more muscle when I work out, the muscles like my biceps, my triceps, and my delts, I might be more inclined to do isolation exercises because I can now see my biceps, triceps, and delts. And it's cool to see your biceps and triceps and delts. But at the end of the day, they are built not because I've, I've now lost some weight and I can see them, but they were built based on what I had previously done. But my mindset shifts and I make the mistake time and time again, maybe of overemphasizing isolation exercises when I do lose weight because now I can see those muscles working. And on top of that, I think that losing weight is the reason why I can build, I've built more muscle. I can see that. So therefore I equate it to building more. And that's a big mistake because that tends to push me down the path of trying to lose more weight to reveal more of my muscles as opposed to focusing on building more muscles. So I hope that makes sense. I just want to tie that together. I left that out last time. I want to make sure I follow back up on it here today. So I appreciate you guys listening. As always, the Always an Athlete seven-day free trial is available to you if you want to come join the Always an Athlete team. 
It's programmed by myself. I'm on the message board. I made the team because I still want to be an athlete, play sports that I love, play sports I like, and train in a way that helps support those goals. If that's something that you'd like to, feel free to check it out. That is the Train Heroic Always an Athlete team. You can hop on in if you like it. You like it. If you don't, you don't. That's okay. It's a seven-day free trial, so give it a go if you want to give it a go. As always, thanks for listening. I appreciate y'all. Take care. I hope you enjoy, and peace out.